This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host, Corey Nathan, and it is an honor to be a part of the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts that examines what's broken in our democracy and how we can work together to fix it. Remember to subscribe or follow and and write a review. I've been telling you about that. The reviews are truly what's going to help us get from that top 1.5% of shows globally to the top 1% and beyond. And it's not just a vanity exercise, although it's pretty cool. It's like bringing home a trophy or whatever. Um, But, you know, the top 1%'s got enough of those shows with we always talk about the extremists and the screamers. And it's time for folks like you and me, folks who want more sane, civil, nuanced, and more fun conversations on the important topics. Conversations just like the one we're having today with Alexander Vindman. Alexander Vindman is a retired U.S. Army lieutenant colonel and was the director of European Affairs on the White House's National Security Council. Uh, Many listeners will remember Colonel Vindman's testimony before Congress back in 2019 regarding the Trump-Ukraine scandal, but there's so much more to Dr. Vindman's story. He is a recipient of the Purple Heart, having sustained wounds in a 2004 IED attack as an infantry officer serving in Iraq. Alex holds a doctorate in international affairs from Johns Hopkins and a master's in the same field from Harvard. He's a Hauser leader at Harvard, a senior fellow of the Foreign Policy Institute at Johns Hopkins, and the author of the best-selling memoir, Here, Right Matters, as well as the writer of an excellent substack, I'm now addicted to it, admittedly called Why It Matters. Speaking of which, I wanted to tell you that um, thanks to a very useful resource that you shared this morning, I called my congressman, Mike Garcia, and left him a message. Yeah, all thanks to you and your brother, Eugene. So if, if just to start, would you mind telling folks what I'm referring to? And if you would, why it matters? <laughs> well, that's awesome. Uh, frankly, I'm very glad you did that. I, I'm familiar. You're, so you're in, in the L.A. area, right? Mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah, so I'm, I'm familiar with that district. We actually um, vote vets in my organization that, uh, that I um participate in politics through um, basically advocating for veteran and national security leaders in, in elected office and federal office. We, we, we were, we've been involved in that district before trying to unseat uh, Garcia because he was part of what we call the insurrection caucus. So I'm familiar with where you are generally. Um, But what we're, what you're referring to is uh, an initiative. I uh, ginned up last night as I was thinking, what can we do to apply some additional pressure on the Republicans, on the Republicans? They're recalcitrant. They're really, um, you know, beholden to the extreme elements of the Republican Party and uh, Trump's, the de facto leader of the Republican Party, Donald Trump's uh, proclivities for Russia and against Ukraine. And the only thing that really makes sense is uh, engaging with elected office holders, letting uh, constituents reach out and say this is an important issue. So over the course of you know the, the, this morning, uh, I put together a means for for uh, listeners, for readers to click on a simple link, put in their their address, uh, and connect with their elected office holder, their their congressman, and let them know with a simple script that they are interested in Ukraine and interested in that congressman passing Ukraine funding. And uh, I did that on Substack to my followers, Eugene, who should be by all rights raising, just sending emails to raise uh, funding for his campaign, set that aside, so like this he could 
also uh, reach out to his tens of thousands of, of uh, supporters uh, on that basis. I, 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 I blasted out on Twitter where I've got you know, some 940,000 followers and threads and post news, something that I've been uh, involved in. Every means possible to do what I, I guess, um, I'm not sure if this is a term, but to do a uh, digital uh, rally. Oh. A digital rally. Yeah. A, uh, you know, uh, what I call Secure America Digital Rally, because that's what we're doing. If we support Ukraine, if we support Taiwan and, and Israel, we're securing America. Right. So I wanted to try to see if I could add some virality to this and uh, do a digital rally to get folks to reach out to their congressmen and let them know that uh, the expectation is that they pass funding for Ukraine. So you have such an interesting perspective, an informed perspective from having served in the military, served in the White House with funding for Ukraine, as with funding for uh, to support Israel, um, addressing what's happening at the southern border. Republicans in the House, they they show they prioritize the chaos over solutions and good governance. So I, I don't know. I couldn't begin to um, analyze yeah. why they're doing uh, these things, whether it's 2024 and or just submitting to Donald Trump. So I'm curious why you believe this is happening. But two, more importantly, are there options that either the executive branch has or or uh, perhaps actions the Senate can take to address these issues? Sure. So I think it, you mentioned two of the key factors, which is 2024 elections, the the uh, ups, the the view that obstruction is the way to deliver a second term to Trump. The idea that uh, any legislation that passes will be a credit to Joe Biden and therefore do nothing is the best approach. It's, a, it's, it's frankly a shockingly bad approach, but this is what they're settled on. And then, of course, uh, I think there is a proclivity for Donald Trump. He has ch chair led for uh, authoritarians, for um, uh, Xi Jinping, for Kim Jong-un, who he's you know, called he, uh, he he described as exchanging love letters with um, and then Vladimir Putin at the top of that list. And then at the same time, because of the fact that he was caught out uh, engaging in, in abuse of power and corruption against Ukraine and impeached for that reason, he has a animus towards Ukraine. So these are these are some of the key elements as to why there is no effort to either pass a border security measure or to pass additional funding for Ukraine. That's that's really one of the primary uh, reasons. As, as to what can be done, I think in terms of, of these kinds of massive appropriations, these kinds of large-scale funding bills. Now, they, they're large-scale in, in what the general public would see as large-scale, but actually in the big scheme of things, you know what we did last year for Ukraine funding, security assistance funding, amounted to less than 5% of mm. DOD's defense expenditures. Right. A, a tiny and, and a quarter percent of our GDP as a whole. We're a $27 trillion economy. We, we provided a quarter of a percent, less than 5% of our uh, defense spending and bought ourselves added security because Ukraine is wrecking Russia's military, which is uh, aggressive towards the US, which is aggressive towards NATO, which is, which is in, in fact, one of the key threats that the Department of Defense arrays against and spends hundreds of billions, trillions of dollars over the past decade to figure out how to deter and defeat Russia. And the Ukrainians are doing it for you know pennies on the dollar. So 
in order to get these kinds of, you know, $60 billion deal, that the only way to do that is um, constitution says is that the Congress has to approve it. There are some, you know, wheeling, uh, wheeling uh, and dealing going on. The, uh, this, the Senate is now looking to potentially pass a um, standalone funding our allies bill. So that would be Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan. And then putting it in, in the Republicans' hands and potentially seeing if they could peel away a small number of, of Republicans to join Democrats in passing that funding. That is not a high probability event, unfortunately. I think the fact is that the Republicans are just going to close ranks, and I'm really pessimistic about additional aid. But the administration has strings that it could pull. The Probably the biggest one in terms of funding is uh, seizing Russia's frozen assets and transferring them the, those assets, those mm. Russian central bank assets, that we've had frozen since the very, very beginning of the war, transferring those over to Ukraine to use, to use to rebuild, to use to, to arm and defend itself. We have a relatively small portion of those assets. The vast majority of those assets are actually in Europe. But by us taking lead, what I call path leading, uh, we provide cover for the Europeans to do the same. Uh, they don't have to worry about being caught out and uh, you know being... I, I, their economy in, as a whole is, is, you know, approaching the size of the U.S. It's, you know, nearly 20 billion. Um, but individually, the states themselves that have these assets that would be transferring them are smaller. They don't want to be caught out and then be basically the outliers that the Chinese or other kind of authoritarian regimes respond to. Us leading it sends a signal that it's us and Europeans. And together we make up, you know, basically what amounts to almost half of the world's GDP, gross domestic product. And that is a warning to anybody to not screw around. That is a warning that, you know, you do not want to provoke the behemoth that is the European and the U.S. economy because the blowback would be immense. You would lose all those investments. You would lose trade and things of that nature. So that's one thing we could do. There are smaller policy changes that we could do with regards to how we support Ukraine. Right now, the methodology has been to transfer older gear to Ukraine and then automatically reorder it. So all those dollars that you saw mm. come through last year, yeah, almost all those dollars and the, the 60 billion that has been requested for this year, the vast majority of that actually goes to stays in the US. It goes right. to US defense firms to to put the newest and best equipment to our soldiers so they could they're better equipped to defend the country. That is not an investment in Ukraine. That is an investment in the US. Right, right. But that that one for one give something to Ukraine and then re replenish it is why we need that chunk of change. We need that the Congress to prove it. In reality, we could break that. We could separate them. We could start giving things to Ukraine, and then later on say, Congress, do you really want to leave our the cupboards bare for our military, or are you going to to appropriate funds? And the, no sane Republican, you know, even as radical as they are, would be caught out. Uh, again, not supporting, uh, providing you know the proper weaponry to to the U.S. military. So that's that's really a, a critical step because there was a there was a law that was passed at the beginning of the war called Lend Lease, where you could start giving away things to Ukraine legally, and really they don't have to pay that uh, hardly anything for it. But we help them sustain the war effort. Breaking those two up is important. Logistics. I've talked about this beat, beat my head against the wall about the fact that we are not supporting. Ukraine sufficiently from logistics. 
Uh, we've sent a bunch of equipment to Ukraine. We did not provide repair parts for it. We did not provide um, the trained technicians to do it. We could do better there. Training. Last thing I'll mention is training. We, we trained the Ukrainian soldiers to do basics, shoot, move, communicate. We did not train them for modern warfare uh, on the scale in the complexity that, that the, they are experiencing. We need to retrain the commands and the staffs to do this much more effectively. And if we do these things, those are policy changes. Those don't require money. The administration could really take leaps forward in being a better ally and better supporting Ukraine. And then of course, put pressure on Congress to pass this appropriation. It's the, one of the, the easiest things we could do to better secure the United States. Before we move on, I wanted to tell you about something else that's important. Money, <laughs> uh, specifically your money. In all seriousness, I wanted to tell you about my advisor and my friend, George Meza. George runs Meza Wealth Management. And with George, it's not just about money. It's about helping us manage our present and plan for our future. And unlike a lot of other firms out there, George and I actually have a relationship. He knows me, he knows my family, and I know his wonderful family. I also know his firm and the incredible team he's put together from his chief investment officer to some of the other great people in his office, like Jessica, their head of operations that are always there to help me and with all aspects of our portfolio. You see, the thing is, I got a lot going on. I guess we all got a lot going on and I don't have the time to watch our investments all day, every day. And even if I did, I don't have the experience and expertise that George's team collectively has. So we get the entire Mesa Wealth Management team, all their expertise and all their integrity. And again, it's based on George knowing me personally, knowing my goals and even the kind of risk that's appropriate for me to take, which by the way, could change from one season to the next. And they're on top of all of that. So if you want George Meza and Meza Wealth Management to be on your team, just visit their website, mezawealth.com. That's M-E-Z-A wealth.com, www.mezawealth.com. And that will also be in our show notes, so you can check that. And now, back to our show. So there, a lot there. Um, yeah. I'm fascinated by so much of what you just shared with us. Uh, one one that I want to follow up on is I, I'm not using the right term, but the redistribution of frozen assets. Um, I have no interest in what Putin Putin's argument would be about that possibility. It's almost like asking Trump about the Constitution. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, I'm not interested. What I would be interested is if there is a friendly ally, uh, one that is dedicated to you know the post World War II. Um, peace that we've been able to maintain ever with uh, with great fragility, albeit great fragility. I'd be interested in what the pushback against that would be from a, an ethical principled ally of ours. Yeah. So I think the, the biggest thing that they're concerned about is blowback. They don't want foreign countries seizing, nationalizing the investments that their companies are making in, in you know various regions around the world. So that's the biggest thing. They are They're fearful that this would open up Pandora's box and countries would start to nationalize. The, I want to, again, dispel that, that uh, notion because in reality, these countries rely on what's called foreign direct investment co companies from, you know, France investing dollars in, you know, someplace in, in Central Africa or something. They need that money. 
they would not cut off you know, uh, their nose to spite their face by nationalizing assets. In the case of Russia, Russia has already nationalized tons of different assets. You know, Ganon, whatever it was transferred to like a, you know, kind of an oligarch in Chechnya and stuff like that. All these kinds of things have already happened. So Russia has kind of pulled the trigger on that already. In terms of a principled reason, it's there, but I think it's in, in part a bit of a pretext or maybe a bit of old think in that what they want to avoid is undermining long held norms that you do not go after the sovereign assets of another state that's that's uh, somehow kind of forbidden. In reality, we've done it. You know, we, we went after assets in, in Iraq and other places around the world. The U.S. has done it um, in order to to balance, you know, balance the the um, uh, budget on what the the uh, that authoritarian leader owed based on like, you know, uh, lawsuits for terrorism, whatever the case might be. We've done this. We've gone down this road before. It hasn't been a bunch of times, but, a, you know, a few times we have. And uh, so this is not, therefore, like this uh, taboo or uh, ironclad norm that could never be touched. We opened that up before. But I think there is some old think about the fact that, you know, we, we shouldn't do this to, to states. The problem is that Russia is not a normal state. It mm. is a pariah state. It is an outlier. It has launched the largest war uh, in Europe since World War II. Largest war, uh, basically, you know, there haven't, haven't been wars of this scale in, in decades. And Russia is more than happy to break norms, to upend uh, interna the international order. And uh, we are the only ones that are playing by this rule, these old rules. Uh, we are tying our own hands. I think you know you could you could say we shouldn't stoop to Russia's level, but at the same time we shouldn't bind our our um, our options in a way that significantly adversely affects our interests, which is to support Ukraine, to have Russia start paying for this war, to use the the fact that we're seizing Russian assets and delivering them to Ukraine as a means to warn off Russia from attacking uh, civilian populations, destroying you know apartment buildings. And things of that nature. I yeah. think that's, to me, that's a uh, very, very. It might not be the easiest trade-off, but it's a, it's a, it's a viable course of action. Right, right. So we we dove right into policy and and um, your, your expertise here. Usually, I start with uh, something uh, on on the more personal side. So I'd like to back up for a second. Um, the very last line of chapter two in your book, "Here, Right Matters," which, by the way, recommended reading. Just incredible. Um, uh, an incredible account uh, of, of a life, you know, not just your life, but you trace it back. So the last line in chapter two of, of the book, I come from people who had to be braver than I've had to be. Can you tell us about some of those people? Well, I think you and I may have uh, some, some things in common in that regard. Uh, our, um, I was born in what was then the, the Ukraine Soviet Socialist Republic. Your family, it sounds like, originated from that part of the world also. They beat us, most of them beat us to the U.S. by about 50 years. We came in 79. <laughs> it sounds like your family may have come over in the 20s. But um, I think in that, in that period, uh, you know, your, your, your ancestors made a valiant decision to leave um, this, the Russia and the Soviet Union, the new Soviet Union at that point in time, uh, fearing the pogroms uh, and the anti-Semitism against the Jewish people. And... In making that valiant decision way back when, they made their children 
and eventually your life easier. It is hard to fathom the hardships that my, you know, parents and grands grandparents had to experience. My dad was born in 32. He was, you know, he was in the single digits. He was nine years old when the war started. And uh, he flew as a, a, a fled as a refugee to the Ural Mountains. His father died in the war. My mother's father died in the war. Uh, the hardships that they had to suffer through the, you know, those are those are hard for us Americans to really understand because we don't have that frame of reference. We don't have that perspective. So I just I think I for mo for me it was important to recognize that there was both an element of nurture, you know, what I learned in the military, how I was raised by my 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 father, my mother, my stepmother, uh, and nature. You know, something ingrained in my DNA about resilience, about toughness, uh, maybe you know fearlessness or something of that nature. Um, and I just wanted to address that by t telling the story of my, my, my father and his, his relatives and so forth from that period of, of time. And I'm pretty darn close with my dad. I talked about him in my uh, testimony in front of Congress. It's, I think it's one of the more notable lines where I kind of put, try to put his mind at ease because from his frame of reference growing up and uh, basically you know, his adult life was in the Soviet Union. He left when he was 47. You don't protest. You don't call out corruption the way I, I did with regards to Donald Trump without suffering the most severe consequences. Yeah. You know, being, be, being killed, being imprisoned. I lost my career. I could live with that. You know, it's, I'm, I'm now on to a new phase. Uh, but I needed to, uh, you know, kind of address the differences that we have, what makes our country unique, and why here right matters, uh, because the U.S. is different. In a way, your dad uh, taught you and prepared you your whole life for that moment. Uh, one line that seems to sum up his story is, don't just start over, keep starting over, as you said. Can you unpack that for us and how it's especially served you in the last few years? Yeah, so, you know, um, just quickly on my dad, I mean, he, like, he, he fled uh, at the beginning of World War II. He fled to the Ural Mountains. When he came back, his family was basically dispossessed of their apartment. It was handed over to somebody that the Communist Party wanted to have their, their apartment. Had to start over there. He was, uh, after finishing university, he had to go to Central Asia uh, and, and basically um, work there because the, the Russians were, the Soviets were doing a, a very effective job of like trying to homogenize and shifting populations around. He came to the U.S. at the age of 47. You know, so that, that that's... Uh, uh, starting over repeatedly. For me, I think it was the fact that, you know, in my own background, I, I think I was uh, a rascal. Uh, and um, I got, I love those, I love those yeah. stories, by the way, of you and Eugene uh, creating yeah. obstacle courses all throughout Brighton Beach, you yeah. know, basically right. not, not touching sidewalk for like blocks yeah. at a time. It was great. Yeah. It was fun. So, I mean, I would, I was, uh, I was studies came easy to me. Like I, I got pretty good grades, but when it came to university, I was basically off on my own. And I, I, I was really ba badly disciplined. So I got kicked out of my first university. Uh, then I had to start over and finished up my degree successfully at uh, SUNY Binghamton, uh, received my commission, went on to Harvard, Johns Hopkins and so forth. But the point is that like, you know, between my father's experience and my own experience, overcoming challenges like you know uh i i learned that you shouldn't fear uh you shouldn't be paralyzed at least you should maybe concerned but you shouldn't be paralyzed by the unknown or starting over 
I recognize that I wouldn't be the same in the same position as my dad coming to the U.S. with three sons and a mother-in-law that he didn't get along with and $750 in his pocket and, and starting over. I would have to, you know, start a new career, but I had my, you know, Ivy League educations and my networks and, and uh, credibility doing the right thing and, and um, expertise, policy expertise. So I just didn't let that be the driver of my actions. I uh, was going to pave my own way and not be subject to fears. Yeah, I, I really appreciate the way you speak of your dad with such uh, such reverence, uh, you know, and, and you ascribe this enduring sense of integrity uh, to the way he raised you and your brothers. I was curious how what his reaction has been to the way Donald Trump and others in his orbit have spoken about you since uh, the since you came forward. So my, my dad voted for Donald Trump in 2016. He was a, a Trump supporter. It was a gradual um, evolution to kind of step away from that. Um, my dad would, you know, kind of give a report card on, on Trump. Uh, you know, in 2017, 2018, he went from like 92% support to like eventually like 80, you know, I was just, I'm throwing out numbers, but he's, yeah. it was a gradual decline. And then frankly, when, uh, when Trump attacked me, when I reported uh, Trump's corruption, my dad was, very, very um, anxious about me reporting it. So it said I should not do that. I should, figure, you know, march into the Oval Office and uh, make nice with him and, and just kind of move on. And I wasn't going to do that. Uh, that just, you know, he, he did it not from the, uh, the standpoint of being a Trump supporter anymore uh, or anything of that nature. He just it, it wasn't that kind of uh, counsel. It was a counsel from living in the Soviet Union and what happens when you challenge authority. At that point, he had already kind of separated uh, from from Trump. Uh, but um, after after I said I was going to do what I was going to do and um, I was attacked for it, in his mind, he couldn't re reconcile, you know, the fact that he loved his son and respected me and and knew that I was doing the right thing. And somebody was attacking me for doing the right thing. Yeah. And that was that was a big break. Uh, and I'd say that for for, um, you know, for him. That was a uh, gradual. Now he he can't stand him as a liar, as you know, basically like value value less, as in like he doesn't have any values or any ethics. Um, and so, and my dad is really uh, keen on on truthfulness and integrity and things of that nature. So the blinders are off. Um, but it it was it was that's not where he started, and um, it took took some time. I mean, in a way. I think it's the story of Donald Trump for lots of Americans. Yeah. Uh, now, Donald Trump, I find it impossible that he could win 2024 re-election. It's going to be close because there's two, two candidates to choose from. But in, elections are a game of addition. You know, you try to bring people on. You get people to turn out. The only people that are going to turn out for Donald Trump are hardcore MAGA. And he's not going to win independence uh, so he can't win, but that's, it's been an evolution, I think across America, but we're still in a danger zone until after November. Yeah. Uh, after we get through this election. Yeah. I, you're talking to the right guy when it comes to trying to prognosticate um, about those four to seven States that are really going to decide the, the presidential election. Um, I am concerned. Mike Madrid is a brilliant numbers guy. He's concerned in particular about the leakage the democratic parties had in terms of Latino votes and, and a couple of other um, uh, voting blocks, but um, 
that, that's another question. I did want to ask you about the perfect call, but I had another question first. Um, you face so much harassment, even death threats uh, yeah. to this day. How has it affected Rachel and your daughter? And, and how yeah. have you dealt with it as a family? Well, that's, 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 a, that's a, probably a better frame than asking me because I tend to be dismissive. Mm. Um, for them, it's, it's uh, for Rachel in particular, it's anxiety inducing. She is gone to, so far as to say that, you know, we might have to leave the country if Trump is reelected. I, there's no way I'm leaving this country. I'm going to fight him uh, uh, and make sure that he doesn't wreck the country beforehand to prevent him from getting there. And I'll fight him if, if I need to after. Um, but from her standpoint, she's concerned about our daughter. She's concerned about our safety. Uh, according to my daughter, my wife is responsible for safety. I'm responsible for fun. So that, <laughs> so I, I think from that, yeah, so from that standpoint, it is, it is very anxiety producing to the point where like my wife is, is turning 50 this year. She doesn't look like it. She looks like she's turning 35, but, um, you know, we're, she's like, Oh, do we want to do a big 50th birthday thing? Should we do something small and save money in case, you know, things, uh, the elections go, uh, uh go in, in Trump's favor. And I'm not going to, it's her 50th birthday. It's going to be a bash. Good. But, uh, <laughs> but in general, I, that's where, that's where she is. Um, my daughter is a little bit different. She's turning 13. Actually, this is her bat mitzvah weekend. Oh, wow. Um, so, Mazel tov. Yeah. Thank you. Family coming in into from all across the country. Uh, uh, some folks are already here. Um, for her, she didn't understand the, the initial reaction. As a matter of fact, if anything, I got cool dad points. Oh, at the beginning, because she didn't notice that she didn't you know, register the, the hate. All she saw was Trevor Noah doing a super, super funny skit about me or Stephen Colbert doing like night, nightly shows talking about me. So I was, <laughs> I was, you know, that that was cool points. Now she's more sensitive and she's like, oh, does, does that person, you know, uh, like daddy or not like daddy? And she's probably more political than almost any other 13 year old yeah. out there uh, and, and read in because that's what our life is. Um, but I think it's there in the back of her mind now, which is to me, that's, that's troubling. That's another reason why I want to get past Trump, Trumpism, MAGA, uh, cause then we can get back to some sort of normalcy and my daughter, you know, could be a kid and not have to worry about these things. Yeah. If you like this show, you should check out another podcast that I love beyond politics. It's entertaining, informative, and full of conversations with smart people with fresh ideas. Hosted by former U.S. Congressman Paul Hodes and our recent guest, veteran political operative Matt Robeson. They get amazing insiders, authors, analysts as guests. Plus, they have a weekly news discussion show where Republicans and Democrats manage to have real conversations. Kind of like what we're going for here. But they also mean it when they say they go beyond politics. So you'll hear from the leading expert on impeachment one week and the lead project scientist for the James Webb Space Telescope the next. Subscribe to Beyond Politics anywhere you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, and all the major apps. And we will be sure to put links to Beyond Politics in the show notes. Yeah, I love your wife's voice on um, 
She has such a intelligent, sometimes snarky in a really humorous way. I love the voice that she's um, crafted for herself. I've obviously never met her, but I she does have um, an important contribution. Uh, the stuff that I've read of hers, whether they're posts on social media or lengthier pieces that I've read. So props to you, man. You, you seem like you have a great uh, a great family, and congratulations on Bat Mitzvah weekend. That's 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 a yeah. lot of fun. So, I mean, there's all that, and then there's the twin. I mean, the, he yeah. Keeps- <laughs> he's, he's copied my face and, and everything and he's he's out there also running for office yeah and- oh that's right so virginia seven that's another critical yeah. district uh yeah. so while we're t- talking about that tell us about eugene and his his campaign for Virginia. that's um abigail spamberger's seat right that's right yeah well first let me say i endorse eugene um <laughs> for, for, but um well i mean like so he's a career public servant like i am he was um uh, spent 25 years in uniform, uh, was on the National Security Council with me, was uh, there with me when I, 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 you know, right over my shoulder when I testified, uh, was there with me when I reported uh, Trump's corruption. And uh, um, so that's a good starting point. Uh, Ethical, values-based leader. He's also a national security pro, which we need more of those folks in in government. We don't need, you know, radical extremists, frankly, on the right or the left. Uh, he, as you don't get that many of those in the military, people think about Michael Flynn. He's a, a, in, a you know, egregious aberration. In reality, people in the military kind of figure out how to compromise, get along. Uh, so he's you know center left, Democrat, but uh, you know not a, a radical by any means. And then of course, I think he's he's also keenly focused on challenging uh, MAGA in general, uh, being the anti-Trump candidate. Uh, but also running on the on the merits, running for what's important to the folks in Virginia Seven in, in Northern Virginia, whether that's traffic and I five corridor, infrastructure build outs, education, uh, you know, um, investments in the region, all those types of things. He's 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 immigration reform. We we're big proponents of, of, of uh, uh, comprehensive immigration reform. We're products of of the American dream and of coming here as immigrants. So. I think, you know, he's I think he's going to be a huge asset in a lot of ways. He's probably the only viable, uh, you know, it might hurt some people's feelings uh, in that district, but he's probably the only viable candidate. His opponents are a series of, um, you know, MAGA vet bros, uh, a special forces guy, a SEAL, a Marine, an army guy. I'm serious. These are the, that's like that's for the candidates right there. Wow. And um and I think those those folks for that district are veteran uh, or national security background in that district is important. It's part of that kind of um, D.C. suburb with lots of uh, government um, or public servants and so forth. And he's the only one that really could raise money. He's done a gangbusters on 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 raising. You know, it's it's interesting that we are ha- OK with paying our elected office holders their salary when they're in government. But sometimes uh, donating to a campaign is uh, kind of a mental block. But if you think about it as you're picking your team, yeah, your donation helps you pick the team that you're then going to pay as long as they're in government. That makes it a little bit easier. So he's done really well with lots of grassroots support, lots of support in the district, uh, far and above beyond anything, you know, any other of the really excellent Democrats there uh, have raised. But on that basis, he's, he's, he's the most viable. Yeah, and I, I think there's something to be said for that because there there are so few districts that are truly competitive. 
Uh, you can make an argument that it's only about a dozen out of 430, uh, 435 seats in, in Congress. Um, and that's that's one of those districts, as is California 27. Um, and, and not only that, I think a lot of what actually gets done hinges on center left or center right um, uh, representatives like that. You know, the biggest pieces of legislation that's gotten done under Biden have been bipartisan pieces of legislation, bipartisan infrastructure, chips, um, uh, even even McCarthy, the last fiscal cliff. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's it's center left folks like that that are that are really critical um, to the to, to what's going to be happening in these coming months and years. So I did want to ask you about the <laughs> the, the, the perfect call, um, mm-hmm. the infamous call. I'm referring for those who aren't uh, familiar, <laughs> if you if your head's been buried in the sand for about five years. Um, it's when Donald Trump tried to extort Vladimir Zelensky to announce an investigation into Biden. Um, so you said that re- that reporting the improper nature of that call w- wasn't difficult for you. It was clear what your duty was ethically um, and what, wow, and your brother in the position that he was, um, it was was so, uh, it, it's- Fortuitous. Yeah, fortuitous. Yeah, I mean, um, it, it was uh, sometimes I really it really affirms my belief in God, like God really mm. does have his hand on, on things sometimes. But that's that's a whole other part of what we talk about here. Yeah. Had there been other calls or conversations that you witnessed or heard in your role as um, at that time, the director of European affairs that also crossed lines prior to the one with um, President Zelensky? I I can't imagine that the so-called perfect call was the first yeah. one that crossed yeah, there, lines. There have been there were a number of phone calls like that. The difference is that there were a number of uh, other directors, and it fell on their portfolio. Mm. And um, in my case, you know, theirs were probably more gray area. Uh, the fact that you know Trump allowed himself to be manipulated by uh, the president of Turkey, Erdogan into withdrawing all US uh, uh, troops in Syria. That that was the, the event that precipitated Jim Mattis, the Secretary of Defense to resign, if you recall. Yeah. Uh, that was not, that was not, that was far from a, a perfect call. Um, the way that Trump interacted with, and I'm not telling any, uh, saying anything that like, that is not in the public record already. The way that Trump uh, interacted with the Saudis after the, the murder of uh, Khashoggi, or the, the Washington Post reporter, far from a, a perfect call. The difference from mine uh, and theirs, a lot of those stayed in the foreign policy channel, what might more clearly be in the president's lane to, to uh, develop or not even develop, to implement foreign policy. The constitution gives them the powers to do that. What the constitution doesn't give them the powers to do is to steal an election. In my case, it wasn't just a foreign policy issue. It wasn't, you know, if it was just a foreign policy issue, that'd be one thing. But what he tried to do is he tried to extort Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, to produce an investigation into Biden at the time when Biden looked very, very vulnerable and in so doing harm uh, or tip the scales in in, um, Trump's favor for a 2020 election. If he was successful, if I hadn't reported that phone call, I mean, the fact is that he would have gotten away with it. He would have orchestrated a, uh, he would have probably compelled Zelensky to, to deliver this investigation. As a matter of fact, there, was, there is, there is a, a fair bit of reporting to suggest that 
Zelensky was about three days away from from announcing an investigation in order to live lift four hundred million dollars in aid to Ukraine. Zelensky held out for months. He held out for until really the the eleventh hour, where the money was about to go disappear. Wow. Um, and ultimately, he was he was pressured. Wow. His country was at war. He was pressured into doing it. But if I if I hadn't reported it, this would have happened. And you could see a scenario in which. Trump would have then cast um, Biden as equally corrupt. Uh, this was what, months before uh, Biden took off in the South Carolina primary, and he may have not made it, in, uh, made it through the primary. He may have not been the nominee. And then we would we would see Trump facing off against mm -hmm. potentially a less viable general election candidate. You know, it could have been Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, and we could have ended up with a second Trump administration. So, I mean, did I know that at the time? Uh, no, I was just I just reported within classified channels behind closed doors that what what Trump did was wrong and he needed to, you know, and I thought was criminal and he needed to reverse course to to not expose himself to, a, a, you know, uh, some sort of criminal indictment. That's that was my report behind closed doors. But that also set off a chain of events that ultimately resulted yeah. in a congressional oversight and impeachment. And all I do. Yeah, by by testifying is following through on those reports. So you, since you bring it up, we're facing the possibility again of a second Trump term, and you have a more informed perspective on this than many, many others. Can you tell us what the risks uh, the U.S. would be taking if Trump were to be elected again? And in what ways would it be different from the first term? Yeah. So I think the second term for Donald Trump would be unhinged. If the first term started, at least started, with adults in the room, uh, Jim Mattis, John Kelly, uh, a bunch of different folks that were in position, uh, Rex Tillerson, you, like him or not, these were you know kind of per, per, somewhat professional, uh, guided by some you know uh, by principles and so forth. It devolved later on. Uh, this second administration would start without. Any of those adults, it would be with psychophants, it would be with uh, you know henchmen, uh, it would be with basically uh, a group that was it would never say no to him and carry out whatever his crazy ideas are, without you know questioning them whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, so on that basis, it's very dangerous. I think the way we would be perceived around the world, uh, you know, it's hard to say when you're talking about states which are enduring, you know, survive for hundreds of years, typically. Maybe in some cases thousands, um, but no, you know, in modern era, at least hundreds of years. Um, so you can't say you know we would forever harm our reputation, but for the foreseeable future, for generations, we would be seen as an unreliable partner. We'd be seen not as you know uh, the shining city on the hill, uh, the effort to create a more perfect union and democracy, uh, the the bastion of democracy we would be seen as one of a number of failing democracies, failed states. And we would probably turn the world into a much, much more dangerous place in, under a Trump administration because we would basically see a return to the rules of the jungle mm. where the strong prey on the weak uh, and uh, where violence reigns. And I think that we would probably be setting conditions for a bigger, much, much bigger confrontation between East and West, um, between authoritarians and democracies. 
and then you know that that that's the big picture that's kind of the geopolitics yeah domestically it's hard to say whether our institutions can survive a second four years i think they did survive uh, clearly the first four years we had public servants uh that were holding the line that was not just me that was all those other folks that testified uh, alongside of me uh talking about trump corruption and then you had um you know, th then at the very end, you had Trump saying, you know what, this is a problem. And he was actually going to fire public servants in mass and put in loyalists without any competency whatsoever. The only the only criteria is loyalty, fealty to Trump. And I think that's a hard thing for our institutions to be able to to bear. Uh, you would see that in uh, in law enforcement. You would see that in the courts. You'd see that in defense. You'd see that um, in the intelligence services, an unwinding of norms, an unwinding of rules, an un unwinding of kind of uh, order uh, and uh, chaos would, would start to, to reign. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're sorry to scare you. <laughs> well, my, I, I'm planning a, um, a solo episode where I just share some thoughts and start to organize some thoughts around it's going to be okay. Even if it's not okay, it's going to be okay. Uh, but it's, it's getting harder and harder to say that it's going to be okay. Um, if, if certain dominoes fall one, so you provided a great context kind of globally, domestically. Uh, one of the other ways that I like to think about this is whether you want to think of it as kitchen table or coffee shop uh, conversations, um, you know, over a beer type conversations. I do make a point of of maintaining friendships across differences including some friends who still strongly support trump some of the conversations i've had have been absolutely um confounding and frustrating for example um you know someone uh someone we were talking about ukraine and he said oh he'd be able to negotiate a deal in a day um or is yeah exactly for those who aren't watching there was definitely an eye roll there <laughs> i know an eye roll <laughs> You have a teenage well, I would describe as a bombastic eye roll. A bombastic eye roll. Um, the one that was really hard to deal with, I, I, I had to cut off this conversation. Sometimes I have to know my limitations and what's really upsetting. Um, I, have, I, I have cousins in Israel. So some of our family came here. Some of our family uh, ended up in Israel. Um, and that if Trump wasn't off, Hamas never would have attacked in the first place. So as yeah, exactly. So again, another bombastic eye roll. Um, so you have a more informed view than any of my friends who are, you know, yeah. spewing the talking points. How would you respond to such assertions? Well, so I would first say that I think if we didn't, ha it's because of Trump that we've had some of our our, our most challenging. Our, our, we face the challenges that we face today. If you think about um, Afghanistan. It was Trump's deal to withdraw Afghanistan. Uh, as a matter of fact, Biden delayed it, but the, then faced the reality that it would be a, an explosion in violence if he didn't follow through on Trump's deal. And maybe that the withdrawal itself could have been handled better. That's true. But it was Trump's deal that, uh, that was being implemented. Ukraine. The reason that Ukraine happened was most importantly because Trump thought it was, I mean, uh, Putin thought it was an opportunity. Putin felt that this was the moment to strike. He tried in 2014 to subdue Ukraine. Turns out that Ukraine cauterized that wound and continued to march forward. Uh, uh, Euro, European integration, 
building out a military, uh, building a prosperous economy. And his window for actually taking action against Ukraine was was diminishing. And what he sensed in in uh, 2022 was a U.S. that was in seemingly in disarray. The planning for this and the, the staging for this uh, uh, for this war in 2022 actually started in 2021. You don't just flip a switch. You have to build up all of the resources, all the tanks and and artillery and everything else. You have to put in fuel hospitals and everything else that actually started in March of 21. What's interesting about March 21, it's weeks after January 6th, where the US looked basically mm. on the brink of failure, right? Where Trump almost successfully stole um, the presidency. And then over the, the course of the same the, those subsequent months, as he was reading the tea leaves of action, or inaction, he certainly didn't perceive, you know, the the kinds of forceful responses that he needed from from Biden. Although Biden did or, uh, offer stern warnings and started to provide uh, additional support for Ukraine, but what he most noticed, what Putin most noticed, is that Trump captured Republican Party was not going to take action to hold Putin accountable for this war. That was the pronouncements from Trump saying that Russia is the good guy, Ukraine is the bad guy, filled with Nazis and, and corrupt. Tucker Carlson, Mike Pompeo, days before, you know, Ron Johnson, all these folks were cheerleading for, for Russia. So in, in, Russia, in Russia's calculation, when you do the, the cost benefit, Ukraine seemed like an easy prize. They thought they could, you know, they huge chauvinists, uh, believing in Russian exceptionalism and, in you know, the, the backwoods Ukrainians not being able to stand up. So they thought the military portion was going to be easy. But the political fallout is what they were most concerned about. What would the West do? And the indications from the Republican Party, from Trump cap captured Republican Party, was nothing. Potentially a pat on the back. Trump said after Russia invaded, Putin is a smart guy. That's what he was. That's what 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 Putin was counting on. Yeah. So this nonsense about, you know, Trump not being there, he would have zero question that uh, Putin would have executed the snatch and grab on Ukraine at some point during the second Trump administration, if he would were to win in 2020, he probably would have just waited maybe another six months until NATO completely fell apart, because mm. that's something that Trump wants to do, withdraw from NATO. Yeah. He would have waited until there was more chaos and disarray and exploited that. So the, this nonsense that, you know, it wouldn't have happened under Trump is just bull, first of all. And second of all, this, it is just the, the height of ignorance and, and folly for Trump to claim that he could end this in a day. He's a laughingstock to Putin. Putin thinks he's a joke, easily manipulated. So there is no, you know, no lever that he has over Putin, one. And the biggest prize for Putin is to subdue the entirety of, of Ukraine, to show that the West is weak, and then to potentially chip away and, and destroy NATO. So then that's the biggest country in the region and, and can prey on the smaller countries, rebuilding the Soviet uh, uh, and, or frankly, the Russian Empire. So that's no, no leverage there. And the Ukrainians wouldn't bend. I mean, right now, the Ukrainians are actually doing uh, on making do on their own. They haven't gotten any real aid from the U.S. since the end of September. We're giving them budgetary support to be able to cover uh, their their expenses. That stopped. So re really, for for months now, they've been doing on their own. 
and all the security assistance is, is stopped also. My, my contacts and relationships in the defense sectors have told me that they've been told to shut off anything to do with Ukraine. There is no money left. Yeah. So what leverage would he have on Ukraine? None. The Ukrainians, it would just be a bloody mess. The Ukrainians would keep fighting. The Europeans would be there in their corner. Maybe the Europeans would even actually, there's, and I, this is not speculation. I, I, I do conferences in Europe. I speak to policymakers. There is a good chance that you have the Baltic states, Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia. You have Poland that feel the dangers from Russia acutely. Potentially, they actually put troops in, in Ukraine to bolster Ukraine because they'd rather fight on Ukrainian territory than their own. And that is a recipe for a uh, for to, to catalyze this into already the largest war in the world, if you think about it by landmass, Russia, Ukraine, into something even bigger, mm. into something you know that's approaching world world scale, uh, world war. And that will that is what you would have with Donald Trump. You would have chaos and catastrophe. Yeah. So I, I'm curious if you have friends, I would imagine that you have friends from your long military career that are still supportive of Trump. Do you stay in touch with them? And if so, do you, are you able to have conversations with folks that really disagree with you on, on these issues? You know, this is, th these are not conversations you have in the military. Mm. Military is apolitical. Nobody had any idea whether I was a Democrat or Republican. Uh, I don't know what the party affiliations are of um, my uh you know, fellow military members were uh, the ones, especially that are serving. It just doesn't come up. You know, there's not a thought task. Oh, are you voting for for Biden or Trump? So these are actually just simply not conversations that occur now. After people leave the military, things become a little bit clearer, and there are people on on uh, both sides of the aisle. I would say that uh, based on how aggressively I fight Trump, Trumpism, and MAGA. These are probably the people that don't want to, I mean, if, if they were friends, they're not my friends anymore <laughs> because in a lot of ways, I'm the face of the yeah, enemy. Right. It's not like a, it's just, you know, one citizen talking to another. Um, but what's what I find interesting is when people don't know who I am, like man on the street, I could have conversations with just about anybody. I mean, I remember like uh, coming back from my wife's family's in Oklahoma, driving back uh, to this is just one anecdote of many um, getting stuck on Highway 81 in like Western uh, Virginia um, and like parking lot, nothing moving. And there was a good old boy, you know, just across the way in, uh, from Western Virginia uh, that was in front of me. And he got out, you know, he had some water in a, in a, in a, a cooler. He's like, hey, it was summer. He's like, hey, and then we started chatting. We started chatting about all sorts of different things. We started talking talking about politics, even. We started talking about like, you know, what was going on with uh, with Biden versus Trump, and like all this all the stuff about like the that Trump is better on on the economy or defense. And I just, you know, I was asking questions like, what is it that you liked about him? It was like, oh, he's good for the economy. He's like, well, are you are you tracking that the lowest in, unemployment numbers in you know, 60 years are, are, are under Biden. Are you tracking that our economy is growing, you know, uh, last quarter at 5%? The, you know, that was a different talking point back then. Yeah. Or that, you know, um, that Trump called military, fallen military suckers and losers. And just point by point kind of diving into these, uh, like, well, I, I just, you know, I, I think he's different. He shakes things up. He, he I, uh, you know, roots out the swamp. I was like, Okay, are you are you familiar with you know the, these episodes of corruption? 
And you could have those conversations. Actually, I'm, I now live in South Florida. And I, even folks that know who I am, uh, I could have civil conversations with them about different things. They're curious about what it's like to work in the White House, what it's like to work in, in the Trump White House. And, you know, I, I share my firsthand accounts and stuff like that. You could have those conversations. It's just not something that you do in the military because it's so kind of, you know, alien to have conversations about politics in the military. That's a good clarification. I, I, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, no, it, it makes sense. And, and I, I think you're right. I think that most folks are open to having the conversation. Uh, and this is the work that, that we do. You know, we're trying to figure out how to do it better because a lot of folks might just, you know, to your point, know one thing about you. Remember seeing your face yeah. on one news report on, depending on which news channel they're watching, think they know everything that they need to know about you as sure. opposed to diving in and learning about you as a human being, learning about your story. And then if we see each other that way, then we're better able to have these conversations. Folks are more open to, um, you know, new information, especially if you're open to like, well, what's your story and what's your experience and why do you feel that way? Um, yeah. I enjoy talking to people, frankly. Uh, I mean, sometimes it could be taxing, but in general, I enjoy talking to people and hearing their perspectives and stuff like that. And my, you know, may, maybe my best asset is like my daughter, who's super, super charming, you know, uh, 13 year old. And like, even if they think that like I'm a jerk or something like that, <laughs> spending time around her, they're like, well, you can't be all that bad. That's awesome. <laughs> well, like, you know what, you know what you could do? You could tell them the, um, what was the thing I read? I, I was reading about, uh, and I laughed out loud. Oh, Operation Cabbage Patch. Tell them about Operation right. Cabbage Patch and you'll have them dying and laughing. Well, so. I, I've had setbacks. I learned a lot as much from my setbacks as I did from my successes. Yeah. You know, I talked about academics. Like I flunked out of, uh, the first university, I had a free ride. Yeah. I, I flunked out because I, you know, uh, um, I just didn't do the work and then had to claw my way back. And, you know, now, now I can talk about it without being as embarrassed. You know, it's still embarrassing, but as embarrassed because I've, I've proven myself there. Yeah. But in the military, too, as a brand new second lieutenant, you make mistakes. Like I, you know, I, in this particular Operation Cabbage Patch, it was <laughs> in my first assignment in Korea, the conditions are very, very different. You know, it's rice patties. Everything is kind of like, you know, uh, wet and muddy marshy and, 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 yeah. and marshy and everything kind of sinks in. And I was doing a, a reconnaissance uh, patrol with my driver and, um, you know, young guy, probably not the, the strongest uh, soldier. But sometimes what you do is because you want to develop folks, you take those folks. You don't always be, be, put the best in your, in, you know, uh, with you. You want those those folks leading other other soldiers. So I had a driver that wasn't one of the best and I kept a close, close eye on him. And uh, on this one occasion, he's like, I've got this, sir. This is all good. Yeah. I could drive down this road. And ultimately what ended up happening is that we rolled this this Humvee into mud. And luckily nobody got hurt. I was able to yank somebody that was in the turret in, into the into the vehicle. So we rolled over uh, and then it was a hours long effort to get this vehicle out using all sorts of like resources that are you know nowhere to be that are hard to come by they had to get like one of these 18 wheelers to to try to get uh to get me out and then that didn't work because i was this thing was like buried in the mud then they got something that lifts out 50 ton tanks and they put they got that in there but there was no traction so then they got a second one of those to anchor the first one to be able to haul me out and oh, anyway man. it was a lot it was a learning experience it was embarrassing uh they got it out nobody got hurt 
um, you know, uh, I learned from that to yeah. trust, but verify. And, you know, that's, that's the way you learn. You trust, learn but verify. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. That's great. Yeah. That, but it is true. You learn a lot more from the L's than you do from the W's. So yeah. um, I, I, I really, that was, a, that was a, a great story, but um, I did want to ask you what I call the TPNR question uh, for talk of politics and religion not killing each other. What do you think each of us can do to be a, able to share space with, have better conversations with, perhaps even nurture relationships with people across our differences. So, and you've already been describing some of this, people who think differently than we do, have different beliefs or life experiences than we do, who get their news from different sources than we do. How can we do better at talking politics and religion without killing each other? Or is it even possible? It's possible. Good. It's possible. It could be frustrating, but it's possible. I'd start, I would, uh, I would start with local. Talk about people's communities. Uh, People's, people are proud of their communities by and large. I mean, there are some places probably we don't know those people that live in really, really tough communities that, you know, that that are different kinds of conversations. But the folks that are in our lives, they're proud of their communities. They're proud of their neighbors. They're proud of their home. Uh, so talk to them about how things are going in their communities. And guess what? They're almost invariably like all the catastrophes are going are occurring over there in that next town over in that next community that's what the news is talking about it's not my community we're living great everything is going well i mean yeah could things could be better but it's it's the next town over we don't want to end up like them if we don't we don't you know uh, uh take take the proper steps so you start with community and ask people to take a look around their community and then you say do you really think that that next town over is like that do you think that's the way people live or you think that's just what the news focuses on because that, you know, that's what the news does. They're penny dreadful is trying to scare people for, for clicks and stuff like that. And, you know, people will start to think about that. They'll be like, wait, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing okay. Could I be doing better? Yes. Things, uh, things are more expensive, but salaries are increasing, you know, uh, investments are improving. And I think you just ask people to believe their eyes. The other thing I think is helpful is people are proud of their families and like to talk about their families. Uh, and I think that's a way you, you, you find some common ground you know, about what, what, how our kids are doing and things of that nature. Uh, and you find and you start from the point of, uh, of commonality, maybe before you dive into the thorny issues like, you know, uh, Trump setting, uh, setting, turning our country into a, a authoritarian regime and destroying our democracy. You did yeah. do that as a second talk. Uh, <laughs> yeah, follow that up. Maybe in the second conversation. Um, I did want to well, ask you. Second part of the first conversation. <laughs> yeah, perhaps. Um, I, I remember uh, I had a mentor once who taught me this thing called FORM, F-O-R-M. He was teaching me sales. Uh, he, so he's mm -hmm. a sales guy. So the M was for message. But I've used the first three um, just for conversation, starter, relationship building, family, occupation, recreation, message. So I use family, occupation, recreation, whenever, you know, just to ask somebody, Hey, uh, you know, family around here, did you grow up around here? Occupation, what do you do for a living? You know, and just kind of go through family, occupation and recreation. And next thing you know, you're into a great conversation with somebody. Um, there was something important that I did want to ask you before we start to wrap up. Uh, mm -hmm. You said that what happened in the immediate aftermath of the call, um, not just what happened to you, but your brother, the, the rest of your family was what, what everybody was subjected to that your faith in this country was shaken. And this is a, that, that, the country that you served and loved uh, your entire adult life. How is your faith in our country and its institutions now? Um, 
shaken is i think that's an accurate way to describe it but it's still pretty firm actually it's shaken is in that you know maybe some of the naive naivete is kind of is gone and that there are people that you know are, are are okay frankly burning it all down just to get even with somebody that they think is you know doing better than them or looks down on them that's what what it is is grievances so we have people like that and I can't really stand those people. Um, uh, those are not people I want to have conversations with. Yeah, I want to have conversations with people that you know don't that may have issues and concerns, but are not prepared to b- burn it all down just to get even. Um, so I would say sh- shaken, but still firm, still holding. I still think this country is going is is getting ready to turn a corner. Uh, Trump is going to be too old to run for anything after 2024. And uh, I think that, frankly, he's likely to go to jail. So uh, I think we'll we'll come through and then people will be embarrassed for for supporting MAGA and Trump. Uh, and we'll we'll have one of those kind of revelations. Uh, but in general, I think, you know, I, I do uh, love this country and appreciate it. Um, we do tend to, to move forward. You know the arc of, of progress shifts towards uh, you know towards a more perfect union, in my view, to mm. to, to borrow that that famous phrase. Um, and I think that we tend to take a step back when we make progress. So it's because we've made so much progress, because we're more inc- inclusive, uh, that you know there are more opportunities for more Americans. That there's such a wave of resistance, a regressive wave of resistance that's supposed to, t- that's taking us back because people are trying to hang on and keep maintain their edge. Uh, but again, it's because of the progress. And that's the way I see it. That's interesting. You, it's, um, you, you made me think of a theological premise uh, of t- tikkun olam, uh, mm-hmm. that the process of, of making the world better, that God is in the process, whether you look at it from a Christian perspective or a Jewish perspective, this, this story is, is, the, is a redemption project. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, um, I, I don't want to confuse America mm-hmm. with, you know, uh, religious yeah. things, Bible things, but, you know, among our neighbors, among our countrymen, we, we can do this as Americans too, um, you know, keeping those things distinct. So it is, it is a, a gray area to start um, blurring the lines. Uh, and, and a lot of my friends from church have, uh, have crossed that line in the wrong way. So I don't want to get, go too far down that, that, um, that path, but um, do you have any questions for me? Uh, I do actually. Oh. Uh, I was curious. Um, I was curious about how you handle the topic of religion. Um, we, we spent a lot of time talking about politics and yeah. policy. Uh, the topic of religion is, is pretty fraught right now because I think it's also caught up in the politics. It's caught up in this no, in, the, in this notion of identity and, uh, you know, Christian fundamentalism, uh, aligned with with MAGA, which seems like it would be at odds because the tenets of Christianity and Judaism would prescribe the opposite of the direction that the uh, that you know Trump is taking this country. Uh, so, how do you you know? T- t- I'd be curious to hear about how you talk about um, religion. Yeah. Um, so we've covered a lot of ground. Uh, a lot of um, as a Christian, I, I've ended up speaking with a lot of prominent Christian leaders. But in particular, prominent Christian leaders who know that there's a cancer, um, whether you want to call it um, 
you know, like Tim Alberto wrote this book, The Kingdom, the Power and the Glory, American Evangelicals in an Age of Extremism. Uh, Robbie, um, Robbie Jones of PRRI wrote a book about um, basically how uh, on racism. Um, uh, Dr. Russell Moore uh, of he's now with Christianity Today. He used to be with the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention on the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission um, ha has also addressed this problem. One of the things that gives me a lot of hope is I, I just spoke to Curtis Chang, who has partnered with uh, David French, uh, Dr. Moore, to start what they call the after party. Um, and it is, a, it is a way to equip churches with how to diagnose this, name this problem, this disease that affects, in particular, white evangelical uh, American churches, um, how to name it, but also how to do better, how to be um, like that group of, of, of Jewish, like Rabbi, mm -hmm. Jew, Jesus was a Jew. He was like a rabbi yeah. with, you know, uh, some, some yeah. students and they were yeah. working it out. And, you know, to be more like that, where, where Rabbi Jesus had, had uh, Matthew, the tax collector and Simon, the zealot in particular, like talk about, like th they make um, Republicans and Democrats look like friends, you know, zealots mm -hmm. compared to tax collectors. So he was able to do it. Um, so I, I talk about it in a way, I want to be earnest about naming the problem, right? Um, I also want to be open, like an open hand, if you will, to those who really strongly disagree with me um, to be able to have these conversations and meet that person where they're at, right? So if it's a brother from church who feels a really strongly say about immigration, I'll say, all right, dude, let's talk about it. Like, Let's talk about it. But if you believe in the Bible, let's open the Bible, see what the Bible has to say about it. And let's see, like, are you are you in line with what the Bible's saying about it? And if not, let's just own it. It's okay, but let's just own it. But here's what the Bible's saying about it. You know, mm -hmm. so that's one of the ways. But the biggest way that I, I deal with it is um, uh, I try to be pluralistic. So I try to have rabbi friends come on, atheist friends who've come on, um, you know, so, uh, or... Uh, uh, a Buddhist and, and um, Hindu friends that have come on. So I do try to be pluralist like, like our country is, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I also try to learn how to do it better as opposed to getting into contests with people, which is the default posture so many folks come into these conversations with. I'm going to get into a debate with you. I'm going to get into a contest with you and I'm going to mm -hmm. win. My side's going to win. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in relationships. I'm interested in human beings. Um, so I'm going to try to do my best now, sometimes there's a line, like when that guy said uh, that uh, my friend said, I still haven't spoken to him. I just need more time to, so that I'm not going to him just completely pissed off. And he was talking about Israel. Like, dude, one of my, co like uh, my cousin's uh, nephew was still missing. It turns out he died tragically on October 7th. Like, I'm not, I'm not going to talk to you about this, man. You know, so there's, mm -hmm. I have to know my limitations. Um, but most of the time I'm able to approach a conversation with the goal of nurturing a relationship and with the posture of leaving room for the possibility that at some point I might say, huh, I never thought of it that way um, with the hopes that they would, they would too. Um, and I yeah. think that is the best medicine, the, be the best antibodies that we can introduce into the system that fights back against, like you've talked a lot about propagandizing, how so many people have been propagandized. I think those are the antibodies, but anyway, that's, it's, it's a really, it's an interesting way to ask a question because, um, well, you could see it got me going. <laughs> yeah. So maybe I should be, I should be doing this. I don't know. 
you're you're talking my language now, man. I'm telling you, you you would be an absolute natural. So let's geek out about that sometime. But before we close up, how can folks follow you, find more information about um, all the great work that you're doing on on Substack, um, find out about any books that are coming out and just all the great work that you're doing? So I I run a think tank. I do a lot of policy work. I I think, frankly, uh, what people would find in my Substack uh, is that actually it's it's not all that dissimilar than the advice I give to actual congressmen, senators, the White House. Um, so that's a good good thing to understand. Um, I, I I think the American public should know uh, what what you know the good ideas are around different geopolitical challenges. Uh, I do have a, a book coming out. It's not available yet. It'll be coming out through uh, Hachette and Public Affairs. It's my doctoral dissertation on US policy towards Russia and Ukraine since 1991. It's basically the backstory of how we got to the war. And I think what people would appreciate is the prescription, is that we let things slide for too long with regards to an aggressive, increasingly aggressive Russia. And we did that because we wanted something from them. But short term, we wanted to work with them on arms control. We wanted to work with them in, you know, in these smaller, smaller areas when we should have been focused on long-term big picture, stability, security. So it's, it's a values-based approach to foreign policy, the centrality of values to interests. Uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm on threads. I've actually been, do, been doing more stuff on something called Post News. I kind of like the platform. It's an Israeli guy that, that uh, you know, is the CEO. You could do long-form long stuff there. So it's kind of it's, uh, it's a cool platform. Um, I think that, that covers it. And then you know, a lot mm-hmm. of philanthropy and a bunch of other stuff. Great, great. And we'll be sure to put uh, plenty of the, the proper links in our <clears throat> show notes so it's really easy to find you. Um, before we close, is there anything, we covered a lot of ground today, but is there anything um, th- important that we left out that you want to add before we, we close? Uh, I would say, I think we covered, we did cover a lot of ground. This is an excellent conversation. Looking forward to joining you in the future. I think your conversation about religion is uh, something that my wife, Rachel, is really interested in. She's been, re- she's read a lot of uh, books in this space and, and interviewed folks for her, her podcast uh, that speaks to suburban women. Um, so that's probably something that you guys um, might, might, you know, geek out about. Yeah. No. So in all sincerity, I would love yeah. to have Rachel on this show. She's somebody that I've been following now for, for a, a year or so. Um, and the more I, I, what's that? She's a big, I don't know. I'll talk to her. She's a big get. I'm not sure if we could, you know, if we can be able to. I've heard her on a couple. She, she does. She only picks like very, very top notch. So I don't know if I qualify, but man, that would be such a treat. I mean, it's, I I will talk to her, but I can't, I can't guarantee that that's going to carry much water. Totally understand. Totally understand. (laughs) Um, Alex, this has been such a treat, man. And uh, there's so much more that we could talk. We didn't even really talk about Brooklyn and where my family's from in Ukraine. So there's so much more to talk about, but what a treat it was to talk to you today. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. And as always, if you dig what we're doing here, remember to subscribe or follow, depending on your app, and write that review. It really does make a difference. And tell a friend about us. Tell a friend about Talk Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Really easy to recommend. It's politicsandreligion.us. It's www.politicsandreligion.us. Or you can find me online at Corey S. Nathan, at C-O-R-E-Y-S as in Sam, N-A-T-H-A-N, at Corey S. Nathan. Um, uh, and I'm on uh, I'm on a, a bunch of uh, threads and Instagram and Facebook and LinkedIn is, is a big one for me. Now, go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect and have a great week. <laughs>